Well, I'm not sure what lessons you recall from, from your childhood. I mentioned a number of them yesterday. Some of them funny, some of them, some of them serious. But one that's ingrained on, on my heart was the lesson, finish what you started. Did your parents ever tell you that? Whether it was the project before school or the speech that I got before I wanted to try for, for baseball, I was always encouraged to pursue whatever my interests were, but I also got the speech, I was also warned if I chose to do something or start something, I needed to make sure that I, I saw it through. Um, you probably got the, the same speech from, from your parents, whether it was playing rec league soccer or beginning karate lessons, and, and the answer probably went something like, yes, you can, as long as you understand you can't get halfway through and decide you don't want to do it anymore. And children do that, so we have to remind them of those things before they, before they make the decision. Did you know that, that no one ever had to give that speech to God? God always finishes what He starts. Whether that's the judgment that we're looking at in Revelation, or the salvation of His people. God never gets halfway through and decides it's too hard or he no longer wants to, wants to go through with it. He finishes what he starts. And one of the most precious verses, at least to my heart, in the New Testament is, is Philippians 1.6, which says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in me will perform it, continue it, until the day of Christ Jesus. It reminds me, that while I have responsibility in my sanctification and pursuing the Lord and renewing my mind and those things, ultimately, my preservation and my salvation, it doesn't depend upon my strength. It depends upon God's grip, and I'm very thankful for God's grip. And in the Bible, God has made specific promises to the children of Israel. He promises that as His people all the way back... In the covenant that he makes with Abraham, he promises that he'll preserve them, and one day they will have the complete fulfillment of the promises that he made to Abraham and also to David, which include the land that they don't have now and also a kingdom. And the greater David will set upon that throne, which will be the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and and he he will rule and reign. Even when Paul is is describing about the plight of the Jewish people today, how they're blinded and how they have they've tried to to gain a righteousness that is of their own and 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 they've rejected Christ. Even when he's explaining that, Paul reminds his readers in in Romans. Besides, don't get too proud yourself. You're a you're a, a branch that's been grafted in. He he reminds them that God's not finished with Israel. He says in Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. And what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 7 is how God fulfills that in the midst of the tribulation period, how He fulfills His promises. And we'll continue to do so. If you're not there, open to Revelation chapter 7. Michael has already read it for us, and we have looked at it together and we're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. Now, now the last time we left off, there was the breaking of the, of the sixth seal. 
which unleashes the worst judgment of the tribulation yet. You have the four horsemen that, they, that bring unbelievable destruction through the actions of men, with whether it's dominion or war or, or famine or, or disease that comes from that. Then you see the fifth seal, which is the prayers of the saints for vindication. And then the sixth seal is these natural disasters that God unleashes Himself. And we looked at those those last week, these cataclysmic events that, that are worse than the, than the world has ever seen. They're going to descend upon the earth, earthquakes and natural disasters. The sky will turn black and, and the land masses will, will be moved from their moorings, similar to the way it was in the, in the flood. And the people of the earth will respond by fleeing. They'll, they'll cry for the rocks in the mountains to, to hide them and hide them from the face of God and, and the Lamb. And, and in Revelation 6, at the very end, this whole dramatic scene ends with this question in verse, verse 17, after they, they ask the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them, because the, the, the wrath of the Lamb has come. He says in verse 17, For the great day of His wrath has come, and here's the question, Who is able to stand? Or who is able to survive the fury of God's judgment? That's a question. Chapter 7 actually answers that, that question. And it also provides a pause between the sixth seal and the, and the seventh seal. It gives us a breather. And there are actually three pauses like this, or, or intermissions, if you will, in the, in the book of Revelation. There are three interludes. The first one is, is this one, between the sixth and the seventh seal. You're going to find another one, just like it, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And then the last one is actually the thousand-year reign of Christ in a Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. You know that the judgment is not over at the millennial kingdom. Satan will be released and there will be a final, a final battle. And, and, and if you ever read Revelation, you've read it through, and you come to this, these places like the 144,000 witnesses or the angel in the little book, and, and you've wondered, where did that come from? It's like John goes, goes off topic. If you, feel, if you felt that, you've experienced one of these interludes or one of these pauses. John's not being a, a schizophrenic writer, but purposeful. It's a purposeful look away from judgment, which is the primary theme, the revelation of Jesus Christ and how He is reclaiming the earth and setting up His kingdom and bringing an end of all things. It's a, it's a purposeful look away from that judgment and a look toward what's happening with, the, with God's people or the godly while the tribulation is going on. So in one sense, you see the scene of what is, what is being unleashed and what's happening with the, with the wicked in God's judgment. And these little interludes all have to do with saints. They all have to do with the people of God and what's going on with them while the tribulation period is happening. Now, I will, I've mentioned this to you before, but I'll just say it again. The church is not found in the book of Revelation after the first seven seals. So it's not mentioned. The word church is mentioned in those first seven seals letters, but, but not after that, but they're still a people of God. As we said, people are still being, being saved. And the promise that God is going to judge the, the ungodly 
and preserve the faithful is, is taught throughout Scripture, not just in, in, in Revelation. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9 states explicitly, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. I mean, you can think back to the stories that you're familiar with. When, when God destroyed the world in the flood, He preserved Noah and his family. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, He preserved Lot and his daughters. When God destroyed Egypt, He preserved the nation of Israel. And when God destroys the wicked in the tribulation, He will preserve a remnant of people, some of which will enter into the end of the millennial kingdom. There's a verse in, in 2 Peter. Look at how Jesus describes the tribulation and, and the fact that God will rescue and God will judge. At the end of Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, he says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and never will be. And look at what he says in verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, would be saved from the destruction, physical death. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short the two groups of people that are mentioned there. And God is in the saving business, isn't He? And the tribulation period is no different. The gospel will continue to go forth during judgment, and many will be saved during this time. Some will be preserved on the earth and enter into the millennial kingdom alive, and others will be preserved through death, and they will enter into heaven. And that's exactly what you see in Revelation chapter 7. John describes... Two groups as he pauses between the sixth and the seventh seal. He sees the first group, a group of Jewish witnesses in verses 1 through 8. Michael read for us the 12,000 from each. And the second group is an innumerable number of martyrs in chapter verses 9 through 17. They will be killed. And they will be preserved in heaven from every tongue and tribe and nation. And so think of chapter 7 as an opportunity to catch your breath before the trumpets and the bold judgments, but also think of it as a reminder that even in the midst of wrath, God will remember mercy. No matter how bad it is, there's always hope in Christ, isn't there? Let's read or look at... Uh, Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through, uh, through 19. There's two groups of servants preserved in, in tribulation. All 19 verses. The first group is the sealed sons of Israel. In verses 1 through 8. And the second group are the slain saints from the nations. Very clear how the chapter breaks down. And John begins with this first group of, of Israelites that will be witnesses during the, the tribulation period. He begins with these sealed sons of, of Israel. Look at, look at verse 1. He says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree. 
John sees something new. It's a, it's a shift. The scene shifts from judgment to God's special protection of a, of a group of, of saints. And John sees four, four angels that are given the power to, to restrain wrath. God's wrath is restrained in this, in this verse. They're given power of the elements of, of nature. They're described as standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the wind. They're giving, they've been given power over the, over the atmosphere. Now, this verse has been used by people attempting to discredit the Bible as, as naive and pre-scientific. I mean, look there. I mean, here the writers of the Bible, supposedly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, think that the earth is flat and it has four corners. Well, that's not what it's describing at all. Of course, whenever they mention that, they fail to mention Isaiah 42, 22, that says God sits above the circle of the earth and the people are like grasshoppers. The four corners are just a way of saying the whole earth. It's the north, south, east, and west. And they have power over the four winds, which is the entire, the entire earth. Dr. Henry Morris, who will actually be here at Timberlake in May preaching for us, says that beyond the, beyond the, the fact that it's, it's north, south, east, and west, an accurate modern geodectic measurement has actually proven that even though the earth is a sphere, it actually has four points that protrude. The earth is not a perfect sphere. It's flat at both of its poles, and it, it bulges at the equator. And they believe that that's because of the rotation uh, of the earth. And so Dr. Boris points out that this is actually very accurate. And the four angels, they, they stand in these locations, and, and they're given this power. And, I mean, this is an eerie scene. Now, just imagine this. The, these first six seals have been unleashed, and all of these cataclysmic judgments have been unleashed, and then all of a sudden everything goes, goes deathly quiet. It's deathly still. No winds will blow, no breeze, no waves will break, no clouds in the sky. They will hold back the, the four winds. Winds is, is used in Scripture as an image of God's judgment. And for this purposeful moment, God's wrath will cease so that He can seal a group of, of people. And he begins to describe those people in, in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the, of the living God. And John sees another angel besides the four. And these are the four that, that have been given power to destroy the earth, and, and now they begin power to restrain that judgment, and there's a fifth angel that, that rises. He rises from the east where, where the sun comes up. Now, it, it's interesting that where John was at on the Isle of Patmos, east would have been Jerusalem, would have been the land of, of Israel. And this angel has the seal of, of the living God, and, and he is to, to seal members from the, the tribes of, of Israel. You've probably heard this before, but, but a seal, the word that's used here is, a, is like a signet ring. It's like the stamp 
that's used in a wax document. And when that seal was affixed to a document, it identified the owner of the document. It also gave it authority, the authority of whoever, whatever authority of the person who had the ring, that, that was behind the document, and it was also security, so they could know whether it was, whether it was broken or not. But this, John says, is not the, the seal of, of petty kings, but, but Almighty God Himself. God always identifies His people from those who are not His people. Think about through the entire Bible. There's the, there's the godly line and the, and the ungodly line. There's the children of Israel, and then there's the Gentiles. There's the church, and then there's the world. And He typically uses a sign to identify those people outwardly. Now, people could take that sign and not be changed in the heart, but that sign was an identifier. In in the Old Covenant, it was circumcision. That was the sign of the covenant. The Bible talks about that the Jews needed to be circumcised in their heart. They needed to be regenerated. But the outward sign of the covenant was circumcision for the church. The sign is baptism. And Satan has, has, has always tried to counterfeit that. You can see that in, the, in many of the, the pagan rituals in the past. Later in Revelation, here's the seal of the living God. And, and what is, uh, what's the Antichrist going to provide? He's going to provide the mark of the beast in the forehead, the same place where these sons are, are sealed. Or at. I think a really good example of these, of these symbols and how it marks a person you can see today in modern Hinduism. Have you ever noticed somebody with a red dot in their forehead? You know what that dot is, is for? The mark is placed there every time. It's supposed to be every time after they make a, an offering to, to an idol at an altar. If you go to Nepal or I'm sure India, even though I haven't been there, 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 there are altars with idols all over the place. And you will see offerings provided there. It, it typically at the base of, of the altar... There will, be, there will be a little carved-out place or a bowl, and it will have a red rice paste in it. And after they're done praying or making their offering, they will, they will take the rice paste and they will put it between, between their eyes, letting the gods know that they have worshipped that day. Think about that the next time you see someone with one of those dots. Some people even tattoo them on today. I'm a perpetual worshiper. Think about the next time that you see somebody like that. Satan has marked his property and pray for them. And I don't know about you, but just thinking about that, that if if I have to put something on me to let the gods know what I've done as if they don't know, I'm not sure that that's a god that I want to worship. This seal from, from the angel will, will, will mark God's people and they'll be preserved from, from judgment. It's a mere image of what you see in Exodus. You remember when the death angel comes through Egypt? There's God's people, and then there is the Egyptians. And the blood was placed over the door. And as the angel comes through in judgment, when I see the blood, I will pass over to you. And he passes over those who had the mark of the blood over their their door. That's exactly what is happening here in the book of Revelation. When future judgments come, this group, having God's mark, will be, will be spared. 
Look at what he says to the angels and the other angels in, in verse 3. Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And then he identifies who these servants are. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all of the tribes of Israel. They were, they were sealed. He identifies who these people are. From every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, now there's not a question of who this group is if you just take the text at, at face value. I mean, it's very clear. They're Jews. The first fruits of Israel, which the entire nation will be redeemed before Christ comes. Now, don't you understand that this 144,000 here is not all of the Jews that will be saved during the tribulation period or, or enter into the kingdom. This is, a, this is a group specifically selected to proclaim the gospel to those brethren on that day. This is not all of the Jews that are going to enter into the millennium. This is a select group that God has chosen to proclaim the gospel. And there's no reason in the text not to take these numbers literally. Why the number of 144,000? Well, it's not because of the Jehovah's Witness, even though after they got beyond 144,000, they expanded the number. I have no idea why God chose 144,000. He doesn't say, but God does. And he specifically says there's going to be 12,000 from, from each tribe. Now look at, the, look at verse 5, because he lists these, these 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah and Reuben and Gad and Asher. And he goes on, all the way down through verse 8, he specifically lists each one and says 12,000 from were sealed. There's been a lot of discussion about, about the list here, because... In the, the names of the tribes, some are that you would expect to be there are left out and, and others are put in. And so because of that, some say, well, these are not Israel. can't be Israel because these are not all of the, uh, the 12 tribes. Dan is omitted and Manasseh is included. Joseph is listed instead of Ephraim. Judah is listed instead of first instead of Reuben. And while that's true, there's no standard way in the Bible to list the 12 tribes. Did you know that there, in fact, are 19 different ways that the 12 tribes are listed in the Old Testament alone? And I think you also have to remember that these 144,000 are a select group of Jews chosen for a special duty. Not all of Israel that will enter into the kingdom. So while Dan is not on the, on the list, they will enter. Dan will enter the millennial kingdom. They just won't get the privilege of, uh, of being tribulation witnesses. And commentators speculate it's because of their, their penchant for idolatry in the Old Testament. So they don't get the privilege to serve in that way. And when you understand that, the list becomes clear. And it also becomes clear that God is not through with the nation of Israel even though they failed in their mission to be a light unto the Gentiles before Christ, now in tribulation they'll, have, they'll become the greatest witnessing force that the world has ever known. And many Jews and Gentiles will be saved because of their efforts. Isn't that just like God offering redemption? How many times have you failed and fallen flat on your face and God has picked you up and used you even in a greater way? That's exactly what He's doing here. 
And John describes this group next, the slain saints from, from all of the nations. Look at verse 9. He gives their description. He says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues. After the sealed sons, John now sees another group. This is a distinct group. It's a different group. After these things I saw, this, this great multitude of people. It's so massive that, that no human being could, could number it. Are you good with numbers? You ever been in an event somewhere and somebody says, Hey, how many people came? And you're sitting there thinking, You know, I don't know. I, I, you know, I think 800. And then you'll actually hear that there's like 200 people there. Well, this is a group that it's impossible to number. It's multitudes upon multitudes. And while the first group comes from the 12 tribes of Israel, this group comes from every nation and tribe and people and tongue. That means every race, every culture, every language. It's all of the boundaries of humanity. When I was a young believer, I used to watch the Billy Graham Crusades. They, they would do reruns of, of the old ones. And I, I can just remember sitting there weeping as I saw the masses of people at the end responding to the gospel. And sometimes there'd be so many that, that the, the entire football field you know, couldn't hold them, and they would get backed up in the, in, in the aisles. There have been many times in history when there's been a massive response to the gospel. I mean, there were thousands that were saved in one sermon alone at the day of Pentecost. During the Reformation, entire countries turned to the gospel after the, the, the darkness of, of Catholicism. The theme of the Reformation, post-Tenebras looks after darkness light. During the Great Awakening in America, thousands of people came to Christ, paved the way for you and I, even today. But God says there's coming a day in the future when a worldwide response to the gospel will be unparalleled. It will exceed any other time in history. Now think about that. Because we're talking about a time when the judgment is going to be greater than any other time in history and salvation will be greater than any other time in history. God is a merciful God and doesn't desire any to perish. It's going to sweep the globe. It's going to come in a few short years. It's going to produce a number that no man, a multitude that no man can number. God's might in judgment is put on display in the tribulation, and His saving power is put on display in the tribulation as well. How do we know that they're saved? Well, look at what they're, they're wearing. In verse 9, they're standing before the throne, before the Lamb. It's where they're at. Look at what they're wearing. They're clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the, and to the Lamb. They're standing before the very throne of God and before the Lamb. They're, they're in a place of fellowship. They're in a place of honor. They're clothed with white robes. And we've talked about that that represents the righteousness of Christ. They have palm branches in their hands. They're in the presence of God. They're, they're worshiping the Lamb. And John even tells us what they're singing. 
their praise in verses 10 through 12. This is where they're at and what they're wearing in verse 10. Crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne. And the angels who stood round the throne and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. These people are singing the song of redemption. And as they do, the heavenly choir that we've seen before begins to join in. The angels, the elders, the four living creatures that you saw back in chapter 4 and chapter 5, they fall on their faces, worship God, and look at what they say in verse 12. Amen. (laughs) Salvation does belong to our God. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might also belong. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What a beautiful scene. They're saved people. How did they get there? How do we know they're martyrs? Well, besides chapter 6, look at their origination in verses 13 and 14. Don't you just love it when the Bible asks a question that you have and then answers the question right there in black and white? Look at verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, that's to John, who are these in white robes and where did they come from? And John answers in verse 14. You're the man, not me. You know. (laughs) How do I know? So one of the elders says to John, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They're in heaven, coming out of the great tribulation. They died. Therefore, they're before the throne of God. One of the elders answers the question. These are people that lived before the tribulation started. Tribulation period seven years. They're not going to be born and... These are not all seven-year-old or three-and-a-half-year-old martyrs. They're before the tribulation started. They were redeemed during the tribulation, and then they came out of the tribulation through their death. These are the saints who will come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period, but they're not going to be preserved on earth like the sealed sons. They're going to be preserved in heaven through dying for their faith. This is part of the number that when we were in the fifth seal, when the martyrs that are already in heaven under the throne crying out, How long, O Lord? And he says, Just a little while longer until your number is added to, and this number is a number that man could calculate. You think we're persecuted now? You wait until that day. Look at what they're given. God gives them a provision. Verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. He's going to be their God and they're going to be His people. And they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them. They're given the privilege of of serving. 
It says day and night, they're before His throne in, in the temple. They're given shelter in God's presence. He will shelter them with His very presence. They're, they're given rest from their labors and protection while, while the, the, the sun was beating upon them and, and there were things happening in the tribulation period and they were maligned and, and mistreated. That will, be, that will be no more. While they temporarily experienced the horrors of persecution in the tribulation period, they're now going to experience the eternal blessings of, of God. And who's going to provide it? And why is it granted to them? Look at verse 17. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to fountains of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Jesus Himself will shepherd them. He'll guide them. And it'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Listen, life is hard, isn't it? There are trials and there are pain, even that come because we follow Christ. The Bible tells us that we should expect sufferings. That all who desire to live righteously will face persecution. And while you're facing those things, either now or, or in the future, remember the promise of of Second Peter. And remember how it's played out in Revelation chapter 7. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly out of trials, even judgments. And He also knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. You can, you can rest in that. And victory is coming one day if Jesus Christ is your hope. And while you're here, as a Christian, you need to remember the Lord hasn't forgotten you. He promises to be your shepherd. He promises to, to lead you beside the still waters. And one day, He's going to right all wrongs and He's going to wipe away all tears. Won't that be a day? What you need to do in the meantime is trust Him. Trust that knows how to deliver the righteous or the godly out of temptation, out of trial. And also trust that He knows how to keep those who are wicked and ungodly reserved under, under judgment. And trust Him in that, in that process. Don't you bow your heads?